Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. And now joining us, the most important man in asset management and global Wall Street, William McNabb of Vanguard. Wonderful, Bill, to speak to you again. How, how, how many trillions of assets does Fortress Bogle have right now? Oh, thanks, Tom. Um, you know, today we manage about $4.2 trillion or so on behalf of 25 million investors. Yeah. That's a... I mean, someday they're going to be at America's GDP. <laughs> David, that's going to that's going to happen. Phil, let me. Tom brings up GDP. Let me ask you for your outlook for for growth. I was looking at your looking back at your outlook for the year 2017, and you you expressed a, a sense of possibility here that we could get to three percent growth. Now, five months in uh, to 2017, are you still confident that could happen? Um, I'm a lot less confident. You know, I think we've not made as much progress uh, in terms of, you know, tax and infrastructure um, as I think people uh, had hoped. And, you know, anything that happens, you know, between now and the end of the year, the likely, um, out, you know, the consequences of that won't really be felt for another, you know, 12 months. So I think it's looking less likely that we're going to get back to that level. How about, how about globally, when you look at growth globally? You know, it's um, again, it's still very muted, uh, as you know. And again, I think the uncertainty, uh, certainly in Europe right now, is weighing. But, you know, even with all the uncertainty, there are some, I'll call it green shoots that you're beginning to see. Um, You know, it's an amazingly resilient uh, global economy in a lot of ways. Um, Obviously, the other place uh, people are keeping a very sharp eye on is China, um, which is tougher to tougher to assess. You know, it's much more opaque, as you know. And um, again, our view there is uh, China is still going to click along, albeit at a probably lower rate than, um, you know, the last decade or so. Well, give us a give us a tour of the Vanguard Garden there. Where are you seeing the green shoots starting to sprout? Well, you know, when you, um, when you talk to companies, um, they're actually excited for the first time in, in a number of years about prospects for actual growth. Um, you know, seeing... Uh, some top-line growth. And, you know, we've seen, obviously, over the last several years, you know, uh, pretty good profitability, but that's been mostly due to, you know, streamlining and and making operations more efficient. But we're beginning to hear, um, you know, some sense that there there is an opportunity for top-line growth. You know, I think from an, our investors' perspective, um, you know what they just keep uh, they just keep in you know being very disciplined and yeah. you know taking a long view which we think is really important bill i stood on a stage at a leading college years ago and a bunch of worthies announced to me it was a single digit world your saving grace is it's been a double digit vanguard index spx kind of uh, return are we? Do you work every day assuming someday we'll actually be in a single-digit equity world, or can we have the kind of outperformance we've seen? 
No, uh, Tom, great question. Um, we actually, for the last couple of years, have been far, far more muted in our uh, long-term outlook. Look, I, I don't think anybody's particularly good at predicting 12 or even 24 months. But if you look at the next 10 years, um, our expectations are that equity returns will be um, two or 300 basis points um, below long-term averages. Uh, you know, that's, we, we run a pretty sophisticated model that spits out a bunch of probabilities, but that's the central tendency. And we know in fixed income the next 10 years that returns are going to be a couple hundred basis points below the last 30 years. So when you take that combination, you're looking at, um, you know, real returns that could be one and a half to 2% below the last 30 years um, for a balanced portfolio. And I think that has real consequences and investors need yeah. to be thinking about that. Bill McNabb with us as we uh, look at the asset management business. He is with Vanguard. We will continue. David Gurren, Tom Keen, the rarest of rare in the same studio. Here together. Yes. Here together. It's been, I don't know, days, Day. weeks. <laughs> mere months, days. Mere, mere hours. <laughs> I've got about eight ways to go with David Gurren. With William McNabb, Bill McNabb of Vanguard, their chief executive officer, on the watch. It's hard to believe, Bill. It's been, I believe, nine years since you've been uh, uh, providing this leadership to Vanguard. I've got any number of ways to go here. Let me let me try this. Inform us that an ETF, is it like a mutual fund? How do you respond when somebody says that? Well, I think ETFs are, you know, they're actually, they are a form of uh, a mutual fund. You know, the the difference obviously is that you can trade among, you know, uh, a buyer and seller can trade amongst themselves uh, anytime during the day, whereas with a fund, you know, a, a traditional fund, uh, you only settle at the end of the day. So um, that added liquidity um, is something that a, a number of investors prefer. Certainly advisors uh, like having that uh, added liquidity. And so we've seen a huge rise in ETFs uh, in terms of their use in portfolios uh, that advisors are creating yeah, for their end clients. To be clear here, people aren't day trading ETFs, right? No. You know, you, um, they're I think you got to think about the ETF market in two buckets. There are institutional investors who use some ETFs, um, you know, to move big positions uh, during the day. Um, the vast majority, though, certainly in, in our ETF uh, universe, are being used by advisors who are putting them into buy and hold portfolios um, for their clients, and they're using them as a core, if you will, for you know solutions that they're trying to create. Bill, you were talking about just the, the size of the money that you, you manage. There's more money in Valley Forge than Fort Knox, it sounds like, at this point. How do you think about growth? How big can Vanguard get? So, you know, it's interesting. We've never had a growth objective, um, you know, for 42 years now. Um, you know, I've been at the firm since 1986. We never sit down and say we want to grow by X. We actually always sit down and talk about what can we do from a service standpoint and what can we do from an investment standpoint to better the – um, opportunities for our clients. And growth, in a sense, takes care of itself. I think, um, you know, from a size standpoint, um, what's benefiting uh, our clients is we're able to do more for them at a lower price. You know, this is a very scalable business, and we're probably the best kind of um, way of looking at that because of our ownership structure, you know, the fact that we're owned by the funds. Everything we do has to benefit that end investor. So when we do have, you know, the opportunities to grow and it's, you know, what I would call good organic growth, 
then the benefits of that from a scale standpoint get passed on right to the investors. And that's actually been the secret to our success. You know, if you think about it, it's almost like a virtuous circle. Um, you know, as people have entrusted more assets with us, uh, we've been able to create scale. That's allowed us to lower the cost, which has made the performance even better. And, you know, you can see how that cycle works. As we talk about this uh, active versus passive debate, something that comes up often is talent. Yep. How hard is it for you to attract talent to Vanguard at this point? So um, we actually have no problem getting uh, people. We've got a world-class staff. Um, you know, it's a place where people come to have a career, not just for a job. And, you know, I, I can't tell you how many 25- and 30-year um, anniversaries uh, I get to go and celebrate. It's, it's, it's just a fantastic part about our culture. But interestingly, we have a lot of people um, – who want to join, and uh, as we're as we've you know been fortunate to uh, continue to have the opportunity to grow our staff, we actually have been able to attract an incredible uh, group of people. I think people are very attracted, David, to the mission. Mm. You know, the the idea that um, we have only one constituency we serve, and that being the end investor, that's actually a pretty powerful. Um, recruiting tool, if you will, especially uh, we're seeing among younger um, uh, people, you know, uh, people coming right off the business school campuses or the college campuses who might not be looking to go into financial services or investment uh, management specifically. But when you talk about the mission, they get pretty fired up. And um, so we've yeah. been able to attract some just fabulous folks. Bill McNabb, thank you so much with Vanguard. Uh, a really good conversation there. And something that is front and center for global Wall Street folks, and that is uh, the buy side, the asset management business uh, as well. Sri Kumar will talk to me about the good times when it was 3 or 4% uh, GDP. He's with uh, Sri Kumar uh, Economics, Global advisors and uh, joins us and is truly one of our most popular guests. You're popular, three because you've been right. When do we get Sri Kumar escape velocity and get out, as President Obama would say, to a better good, a better GDP? I think before we get to that, Tom, two things need to happen. One, what we have done in terms of just boosting speculation in financial markets through the monetary expansion would have to come to an end. And second, you have to do something which uh, Chairman Bernanke told you during uh, your interview yesterday, namely that workers need to get education, they need to get vocational training. The kind, This is what we call structural changes, and that's what happened yeah. in, in Germany in 2003 and boosted economic growth subsequently. But if if it's a structural change and everybody trots out education is the, uh, the the major deal, what is the non-structural jump that policy can do right now to give us a better economic growth? Is it an expansion of the fiscal uh, deficit? Uh, if you do, yes, you can have an expansion in the fiscal deficit, which gives you a one-shot boost to economic growth. It is as if you get a B12 vitamin shot to get additional energy, Tom, but that lasts only so long. After that, if you want to keep your strength, you need to be doing something different with your physical structure. And it's the same thing with the economy, that something has to be done 
to keep the economy permanently at a higher level. I can tell he's from Santa Monica because of the B12 vitamin shot. (laughs) (laughs) What did you make of the statement yesterday that we got from the Fed? The effects in the first quarter were transitory. Uh, You agree with that? I'm glad you asked the question, David, because I have very strong feelings on that. I don't think the Fed has any idea whether it is transitory, semi-permanent, or permanent. They have made statements over the last eight, nine years that growth was going to pick up. That statement was first made in 2001, 2009, repeated every year since, hasn't happened. So there is no basis for these statements. You just say that and hope people will believe you. And then on the basis of that, maybe you would spend more. You would then stimulate the economy based on your animal spirits and your expectation that things are going to get better. But in reality, if you were a strict constructionist economist, there is no basis to expect that. What did you see in there of interest yesterday? There wasn't a whole lot of commentary about the balance sheet, for for instance. Anything jump out to you from the, the Fed statement released yesterday, too? What jumped out of it was the vagueness of it all. Mm-hmm. They did not even come out and say that they were going to raise interest rates on June 13th, 14th. Even that was left vague, even though after the meeting, the probability of a raise uh, in the markets went up close to 100%. Uh, they did talk about padding uh, the balance sheet, but there was more that came out of the Bernanke Tom Keane interview yesterday than it came from the Fed itself. That's what I like to hear. So <laughs> you're saying it was one of our most the, popular better guests, than, <laughs> better than the shoddy Wilbur Ross interview. So we we, we really do not have uh, David any basis in terms of clarity in terms of what it is, and that has been my problem with the Federal Reserve ever since. You do not have the transparency. You don't have clear decision rules. You only know, and this is, I think, one reason why the stock market has been surging, is that that the stock market believes that the Fed will protect them in case of a fall. That's about all you know. Sri Kumar with us. Sri, we were talking earlier about, yeah, the second quarter bounce. Do we have an investment bounce with that? Uh, We don't have an investment uh, bounce yet, and that is why I think any pickup in economic growth is going to be limited, Tom, more of a a jump back from the very depressed first quarter and probably calculation issues with the first quarter that you have it rather than a fundamental change in consumption or investment. Both of them continue to be very weak in the first quarter, especially on the consumption side. And uh, if you if you look at some of the recent price figures, the latest mm-hmm. core inflation figure was actually negative month on month. And the real consumption spending in the month of March was up only because prices fell and the nominal consumption was level. These do not signify to me any sign of a, pick, a big pickup in terms of strength. I was talking to Brian Moynihan yesterday, the chairman and CEO of Bank of America. We were talking about hard data and soft data. And he says, the economy feels different. It feels better. What can you buy with soft data? How do you feel about that debate? I think the debate and the soft data being consumer confidence numbers, which are very good, business confidence numbers, which are good, but they are not backed by data. And I think some of that, I think there is a gap. Initially, you had the big pickup, David, on the overall confidence in the aftermath of the Trump election. And that lasted into the presidential inauguration on January 20th. But thereafter, especially in March and April, we start started to see the stumbling blocks taking place. 
the measures could not be passed very quickly. We are waiting to see whether the health care bill will, in fact, get 216 Republican votes this afternoon or this evening. Um, those doubts mean that eventually, I think, consumer sentiment numbers or the soft uh, data will follow the hard data somewhat lower. Uh, the gap is, I think, more a matter of time before they both catch up to each other. Give us a, a little preview here of what you're looking for on Sunday night uh, out of France. Tom's going to be headed over there with Francine Lacqua, anchoring our special coverage on a Sunday afternoon here, Sunday evening uh, in Europe. What's that election going to tell you about the economic direction of France and Europe more broadly? I'm taking, David, that the election result is, is set. You have Emmanuel Macron winning, and the question is, mm. what is the abstention rate like or what happens with the people actually, something that they do in France, you go actually to the polling booth, but you put in a blank vote, mm. which is like an abstention. And to what extent that reduces the margin by which he wins. So if you are talking about somebody winning 50% plus one vote as the winner, he definitely seems to be there to win. But the real issue thereafter is going to be that how is he going to implement policies? Yeah. Uh, June, France's uh, parliamentary elections. He uh, does not belong to any uh, regular party, nor does Marine Le Pen. And assuming he's the winner, he has to co-opt the help of whomever he nominates as the prime minister to work with him. And this process, of, which is known as cohabitation in, Fra in French politics, has never worked out well. It means it continues, but you can't get tough measures passed. And France needs very difficult measures in terms of spending control. Mm. It need, the labor market is very rigid, which needs to be made more flexible by the new president. And we essentially had wasted years under Francois Hollande because he talked about increasing uh, tax rates and he was essentially he drove away businesses. That needs to be redressed and done in a hurry. And I'm not sure Mr. Macron, despite his pro-business leanings and his investment uh, banker background, would have enough populist support or parliamentary support to do so. You can bring it right over to the United States. I mean, as Francine mentioned this morning, Francine Lacroix, it's, it's a whole different structure over there. We've got this key vote today. Do you sense right now in this weekend, Sri Kumar, that there is a change in optimism that will get things done? Uh, you, in the United States the United as a result States. of today's vote? Yeah. Yeah, I think if there is a, if the vote passes the House today, yes, there is going to be a rise in optimism. But then you're going to wait to see if it passes in the Senate because what we hear is that the opposition in the Senate to passing it is just as intense and it's going to be very difficult to get 51 votes in the, in the Senate. So if it passes, yes, you've crossed a stumbling block and the market may have a sigh of relief. The futures are up today, partly expecting something good to happen. Uh, but then once again, reality is going to set in. You, what you need is a period of time when you can take a lot of the legislative approvals as given. And I don't think we are there yet, Tom. I, I, again, I, I look at this. And let's dovetail our two interviews uh, yesterday into this. And it is on trade. Ben Bernanke and Wilbur Ross do not agree on how the United States should affect a new trade policy given globalization. Educate our audience. What does Secretary Ross believe? What does Chairman Bernanke believe? 
I think it, that's a great question and a timely one. Let me divide this in, in this manner. I think Secretary Ross is talking about making uh, a f for fair trade, free trade, but with the regulations being followed properly. I think the difference is that if you really want the U.S. to benefit, you need to go beyond the trade balance alone and look at the total balance of payments. Partly because of my having been a student with Bob Mundell at Columbia University, we look at what we call the total balance of payments, including capital inflows. Mm -hmm. And one of the pieces I did for Bloomberg View recently is to say that if we go and increase the market share for U.S. companies in China, for instance, you get a lot more benefit in terms of jobs being created in the United States rather than just fighting on the trade front. And I think the Bernanke approach, with which I agree, is in terms of the free trade that he supports. I would extend it beyond just merchandise trade and extend it to services and capital inflows in a manner in which the United States benefits by having more opportunities, for instance, for U.S. corporations to bid for contracts yeah. in China, which are, they are unable to do right at this moment. Sri, thank you so much, Sri Kapar, with thank us you. this morning with a, a prescient view on economic growth. We will see. There's other people that push against Dr. Kumar and speak of uh, three and even higher GDP growth. I don't know where that is right now, David, because the data has been a little soggy, mm. as the Fed mentioned yesterday. I don't think they use the word soggy, but I would have. You, you, you okay over there? I'm okay. Just thinking of what, you know, what happened quite beautifully is at the end of your interview with Ben Bernanke, you talked about trade, and I was able to bring that up with, with Wilbur Ross Did as you? well. You know, he talked about, you, you asked him about what the dissolution of or the, the, the disappearance yeah. of NAFTA would mean. I, and it was interesting you know. to hear Wilbur Ross talk about how you have to, re, you would have to replace it with something. And he sort of alluded to the fact that that might be actually what was discussed during negotiations over the, the TPP. So he's yeah. saying that you can't have a, yeah. can't have a vacuum. Uh, but his approach thus far has been so piecemeal to look at, at by industry, by industry, sector by sector. He talks about enforcement. I asked him about the reciprocal tax that the president floated with uh, Margaret Talliff and Jennifer Jacobs in an interview with Bloomberg News. And what's interesting about that is he highlights this disparity in tariffs. Uh, yet these are things that have been negotiated over years' time. And to sort of go against uh, what's been done under the aegis of or the imprimatur of, of, of the WTO is something that I think is going to be highly controversial and difficult for, for the U.S. Uh, yeah, US well, government. Good morning, uh, Bloomberg 99.1 FM, Washington. Uh, David and I are always honest with each other. I, <laughs> I missed your interview yesterday because well, Justin Chart Banner and I made a beeline for Ben's Chili Bowl. You had to go. You had to get you that know, half you know, smoke. Had to get. It was, uh, <laughs> you speak singularly. <laughs> no, it was a plural half smoke. There you go. Afternoon. So I'm glad you briefed me on Secretary Ross's good effort. We thank the Secretary. Thank you for his time as well. It was very nice of him to come to New York to do that with us at the Bloomberg Summit yesterday. It was very nice of Ben's Chili Bowl to let me <laughs> in yes. yesterday. Coffee, milkshake as well. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. 
Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. Libby Cantrell with us uh, with PIMCO uh, joining us. Libby, I'm going to cut right to the chase. I don't care about today. Is there even a hint that the Senate will let the death of Obamacare happen? Well, I think, I mean, you you raise a good point that regardless of the outcome of the House vote today, uh, the repeal and replace bill faces a really uphill road in the Senate. Um, in some ways, the House uh, vote was supposed to be the easiest step. Um, so the fact that they've had difficulty just shows you really that there's not a lot of unanimity among Republicans about what to do on Obamacare. And I think very importantly, there are lots of provisions that voters like about Obamacare. So, yes, to your point, regardless of what happens today on health care, it's going to face an uphill road in the Senate. I, I think that probably something will get done, but it won't get done for you know, several months. I mean, I think the Senate is going to do what uh, the House you know, arguably should have done, which is hold hearings and have a markup and go through the regular legislative process. And, and that, you know, as we all know, takes a lot of time. Is your sense here that Republicans in the House are voting on a bill and that's enough, or do they think of this as a good bill? Yeah, I think it's I, I think it's mixed. I, you know, I I think there are probably folks in the Republican conference who wish that they could wait to take a vote until they get say the the score from the Congressional Budget Office about how much it's going to cost and what the coverage looks like under the new bill. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of um, you know I think desire just to get this off their plate. They want to move on to tax reform, for example. They know this is going to be amended in the Senate. And so I think some members okay. just think, well, yeah. we'll take the we'll take the vote, and uh, and then the Senate yeah, exactly. will it. It's a dangerous, it's a risky strategy, though politically. Well, does that risky strategy get in the way of one p.m. or whenever they're going to vote today? I mean, uh, you've just described what I've read a lot about Libby. What's the sweat factor on the floor? I mean, are people going, "Why am I doing this?" Or, or are they yeah. like giddy? Or is there champagne? Well, what's the mood? <laughs> Well, you, you know, you would think, um, and certainly under other speakers, there would not be a vote unless they're pretty confident in their whip count, right? That they know that when they get this to the floor of the vote, that they'll get the, in this case, 216 votes that they need to pass legislation. I don't think they're quite there yet. Um, there are 18 no's. They can only afford to lose 22 votes. And there are lots of folks who are still undecided. So I think the idea and the calculus is, well, we'll hold this vote. They're breaking for recess at the end of the day today, um, and we'll try to twist some arms. But I, you know, I think it's going to be close, but it sounds like the Republican leadership has the confidence that they have the votes, albeit, you know, by a very thin margin. It might only pass by one, uh, one vote or so. Our chief Washington correspondent, Kevin Cirilli, at Kev Cirilli, tweeting 15 minutes ago, a quote, 
from Mark Meadows, Congressman Mark Meadows, who is on his way through Statuary Hall, quote, we're going to pass this thing today. How fractured is this Republican Party uh, in the House of Representatives? We talked with uh, Congressman Jim Jordan yesterday, uh, Congressman French Hill as well. There were so many factions of the Republican Party in the House specifically. How does House Speaker Paul Ryan corral all these disparate groups? Yeah, and, you know, he's been um, he's been a little bit limited in terms of his, the tools in his toolkit because if you remember, sort pre pre twenty ten, Republican and Democratic leadership could use something called earmarks to get their conference on board mm-hmm. with difficult votes. Um, you know, that's sort of the unsavory practice of appropriating uh, money to c- members of Congress's district. There's nothing illegal about it, but I think that the American population just didn't feel like it was above board. But regardless. It was actually an effective tool in order to corral a disjointed conference. Uh, Speaker Ryan doesn't have that anymore because Boehner outlawed that. So, you know, he doesn't have the tool in his toolkit. And um, as a result, you know, you, you are seeing probably right, these fractions in the party more evident than you would have before. Libby, we're not making a highway bill to Ithaca, New York. <laughs> this is Obamacare. <laughs> I believe it's 17 percent or whatever of GDP. Are you telling me we're supposed to do the legislation of a highway to Ithaca, New York? Like Obamacare? Come on! No, I'm just, I'm just saying that it's, it's, it would have helped. I think it would have, it would have helped uh, Speaker Ryan in, in this, in this case. But you point out a really, it's, this is a really important point because, um, you know, they're, they're effectively airdropping legislation on the Republican conference and sort of expecting them to pass it. And, you know, that's a, again, that's a politically risky strategy because even if this bill gets really amended in the Senate, which I think the expectation is that it will be. Um, these folks are still on the record for taking this vote. And if the CBO, for instance, comes back and says that folks won't get coverage and the pre-existing you know, uh, provision isn't sufficient enough, that's going to be something that I, I think will probably haunt them going into the midterms, which are you know, amazingly just right around the corner. There is no CBO score. We talked about that just a couple of, of minutes ago. How big a deal is that? Is that something you think a lot of, of, of these congressmen's constituencies understand the, the importance of that? And, and uh, how blindly are they entering into this without getting that score from that non yeah, I, you know, on the hill? <clears throat> It's something that they, you know, uh, Republicans really criticized Democrats during the Obama administration for not waiting for the CBO score on big pieces of legislation. Um, so I think they're certainly opening themselves up uh, to criticism within within the Beltway. But you're right. I mean, it, it, does the CBO score really matter to, you know, the sort of regular voter? No. But in terms of the headlines that it creates, yes. And I think that's what they're really concerned about and is honestly part of the calculus here. They want folks to take this vote, I would presume, uh, before that CBO score comes out with fear that, that, you know, it may not be that, it may not look that good. What does this mean for, for tax reform? Looking ahead uh, to tax reform, as, as you pointed out in a note, you know, there, there are no significant legislative achievements for this president yet. He'd like to have some. Uh, how, how contingent on this passing is tax reform? Well, in some ways, tax reform is easier with this because, um, as you as you all know, this is actually an, a tax cut um, in addition to the sort of the repeal and replacement of Obamacare because it repeals some of those tax provisions that were associated with Obamacare uh, and the original legislation. So it actually makes tax reform a, a little bit easier because it takes uh, care of about a trillion dollars in, in tax cuts that tax reform 
reform wouldn't have to address otherwise. Um, but then from a process perspective, it actually makes it a little bit more difficult because now it requires uh, some the fiscal year 2018 budget to be passed before yeah. tax reform because of this reconciliation yeah. issue. Okay, which, we're we're going to come back, but let me, I, I want to circle back. Does any of this chat matter if the Senate exists? Is the Senate going to pass what the Republicans are voting on at 1 p.m. ish this afternoon? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, no, they will not. They will okay. not pass as is. They we, will amend it significantly. Okay, that'll be a good point to pick up on. When is it? Was that was that fair and balanced, David Gura? <laughs> I just tried it. I like her one word answer there. That's straight ahead. Like yeah. No. I no. Like <laughs> <laughs> just you know. I mean, everybody is like the soap opera to get to Michael. Bar. When is it, Michael Bar? One p.m. or twelve thirty? Or should be about 8 one p.m. tonight. Is about like the Greeks. Yeah, I was I was thinking the same thing. I'm wondering all tonight? this. Yeah. If this, and what's going to happen here. in the Senate? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> Michael Bar will have our news for us in New York. We'll do that. In Okay, two, they were conservatives, but they became moderates and they went back to conservatives. I get that. That all happened in the last 24 hours. How will Speaker Ryan cajole cajole other moderates to come over and seal this deal today? If I'm a moderate, I'm a moderate, aren't I? Yes, and and many of these moderates, um, of course, are from districts that went to Hillary Clinton. So they really have an eye on the dynamics for uh, in the 2018 uh, midterm elections. I think Fred Upton, who is a moderate and who is, of course, behind the um, the last minute change to this bill, uh, yeah. will be very instrumental in terms of convincing the rest of the moderates that they should vote on this. And as we were talking about before, I think the calculus here is let's just get it out of the house let's you know move on with this let's um have you know put some points on the board so to speak uh and and then move on to other you know other issues um that we promised the electorate that we would that we would move on libby did it used to be better when you were on capitol hill was there dialogue regular dialogue between staffers on the house side and staffers on the senate side did it seem like there was a better relationship then than there is now just in general, there was more comedy, um, you know, between the parties and between the chambers. Um, I think folks, you know, went out with each other regardless of what their political affiliation was. I, you know, I don't, I don't sense that that is as pervasive now, which is, um, which is unfortunate. And, and there were members who spent a lot of time with, uh, with each other across the aisle, and I don't think that happens either. So, you know, I, I, that's sort of a long way of saying that um, some of these sort of relations outside of work, uh, you know, I don't think exist as much as they as they did. And as a result, you know, I think we've seen the result from the yeah. legislative pr- pr- perspective that it's, things are more partisan now. So you're not down in Washington at the Trump Hotel bar saying count the Democrats, right? <laughs> That's not a game? Uh, not no, not as uh, yeah. much. They're, they're still there waiting. Are of, there are a lot of unemployed Democrats in in, in Washington right now. Well, so, they're, they're, um, they're still looking for the first Democrat to walk through the door, David. <laughs> Libby, uh, the hottest ticket in Newport Beach next week is at the PIMCO Secular Forum. Uh, we heard about yes. that a couple of weeks a couple of weeks back, and uh, Ben Bernanke will be there along with uh, Anne Marie Slaughter, Jean Claude Trichet, Larry Summers. The uh, invitation you and I got it was just you know wasn't it, David. <laughs> Uh, Maybe next year, guys. I love the photo of this room. You know, they're gathered around this round table in the center of a large lecture hall. It looks like a meeting of the U.N. Security Council. Anyhow, what are you going to be listening for? Newt Gingrich is going to be there, among others. Uh, As you all gather there, what do you want to hear from the former Speaker of the House, uh, from, uh, from the former Treasury Secretary and others? 
Yeah, so you know, this is um, this is sort of a, a integral part of our investment process that we've been doing for thirty plus years, um, where we all gather around every year in terms of sort of testing what our outlook for the economy is in a more secular uh, fashion. So three to five years out, and it's a good um, sort of gut check, so to speak. And I think this year, especially, we will be talking about some of the assumptions we made last year, which were sort of this new neutral idea that the Fed is going to be. Um, Sort of lower for longer, and we've had a lot of discussion, you know, after sort of in the in the intervening uh, months of whether that still holds. And so I think that our week next week will really be to test that. And of course, public policy has a big part, a big role in that. Insofar as will we see a lot of fiscal expansion from the U.S. government, and as a result, will the Fed be you know, forced to move faster than they would otherwise? Um, I think, you know, not to prejudge the outcome, mm. but you know, just given the rate of, um, of, sort of legislative movement, you know, I think, you know, our view is that we'll probably see some fiscal expansion, but it will be a lot smaller than I think a lot of people had originally expected and maybe even hoped after after the election. So, you know, I, I who knows, but I, I would uh, I would presume that I will probably coalesce more around our new neutral thesis than this idea of a, of a new paradigm. Looks like an amazing line. I mean, I'm, yeah. You got an invitation, Tom? I didn't. I just... <laughs> yeah, Rachel. Uh, but, and, and, you know, and your question, though, David, about you know, speaker. You yeah, know, speaker yeah. I think he can put some of you know what we have seen in in context, um, yeah. and 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 you know, just talk a little bit about you know how you know how significant. Of course, the hundred day mark um, came and passed last week. You know, how significant was that? Was it that you know President Trump hadn't had any legislative accomplishment, and sort of what is that? What does that mean mm-hmm. for his remaining time in office? Um, and as we all know, that's sort of an arbitrary milestone. And I, you know, I would argue that the first year is a lot more important than the first hundred days. Um, so you know, there's still lots of yeah. time in, in terms of you know, before judging okay. you know, what the what the president's legacy is going to be. Libby, thank you so much, Libby Cantrell Pimco, with some clear talk here on our legislative uh, process. And now an important interview with commodities on the move. Iron ore truly plunging. I I use that word carefully. And copper, a set of lower highs. And then oil. And the only word I can properly use, folks, is grinding. It is day after day after day where oil struggles on the bid. Stephen Shork knows every valve and pipe from here to Cushing with the Shork report. Stephen, good morning. Good morning. Why is this happening? Is it a linkage of all commodities, or is each commodity a specific story? Well, for me, it's a specific story with regard to oil, of course, and we have to keep in mind uh, it begins with OPEC. Keep in mind back in November when OPEC made this surprise announcement about a production cut. In December and January, after that announcement, Wall Street went all in on higher oil prices. And as we know, and as Bloomberg has reported, OPEC was actually consulting with the largest hedge funds and oil traders in the world. That's how they got to that decision in November. It has not panned out for Wall Street. And in February, we saw a mass liquidation of all that length. And hence, we dropped from about $55 a barrel in uh, in December, and we got down to more or less of where we are today. Then in March, 
the seasonality kicks in, guys. Refineries come out of their turnaround season. They start buying more crude oil. There's more demand in the market. There's support for price. And we had a nice yeah. little rally uh, in March and into April. But lo and behold, the market's coming crashing down. What's again. different in this wave lower April into May versus February into March? Right then, February into March was, and I'll attribute that to the liquidation of the Wall Street bulls getting out of their position and taking their lumps and selling off and buy, selling off their length, hence the weakness. And then we did get this bump up in price because of seasonality. But let's go back to OPEC. The only thing that OPEC has succeeded in is raising the cost for its Dubai-linked crude for its crude oils priced off of the marker in the Middle East, and they've raised the cost of that crude oil relative to the crude oil that is priced off of the North American market, the NYMEX, and the North Sea market, ice Brent. So what we are seeing now, guys, is a situation where let's look at China, because right now OPEC, and this is important, non-OPEC oil is now competing with the Dubai market for sales to Asian refineries. So when we look at the latest statistics, China month-on-month saw its imports from Saudi Arabia, Dubai length, drop 14%, and its imports from another OPEC country, Angola, West Africa linked to the North Sea market, rise 30%. So what is happening, guys, is... The bulls will keep on trying to tell you that this is an OPEC story and OPEC is going to balance the market. When we look at the global geographical spreads, the link between the North Sea market and the Dubai market, the link between the NYMEX market and the Dubai market, it is clear that OPEC has failed in its endeavor to balance the market. Now, the biggest problem here is this is when demand is at its strongest. As we said, the refiners are coming out of their winter maintenance season. They're buying a a lot of crude oil. Crude oil demand in the United States has never been higher. And so you have to ask yourself, if the bulls can't rally the market when the demand is at its highest and OPEC has failed to balance the market, then you have indeed a lot of issues ahead of you if you are bullish when you look at the third and fourth quarter when we're still producing a lot of oil and that demand begins to fall back. David Gura jump in here. David? Yeah. So when this happens, when we dip below $50 a barrel, first time that's happened since mid-March, I think we get this red redhead alert here on on the Bloomberg. What's the significance of it? Where is support as you see it, and 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 what is moving below that fifty dollars threshold tell you? Well, keep in mind the fifty dollars threshold is just that. It's just the number. It's it's a it's a big sexy. It's got a five in front of it. I'm like, <laughs> good. If you if you go below five, then you're you're in a four, right? So it's just psychological. But as we know, psychology drives a lot of the market. So the bottom line here, guys, is if you are bullish oil. This is your do-or-die moment. We are now playing in a significant area of technical support. In the spot NYMEX market, that support is 47.22 to 45.32. As I look at my Bloomberg, we're right at 46.95. So we are well now into that range. That range, if you are bullish, has to hold. In the Brent market, in the spot Brent market, that number is 50.97 to 49.23. So dipping below $50, we are once again now in that key area of technical support. If you cannot hold that support, and keep in mind, if you can't hold that support now when demand has never been stronger, then you've got a real issue. Because if you break the bottom of that range, 45.32 on the NYMEX, 
49.22 on the um, on the Brent market. If you can't hold that when demand's stronger, then you have real issues. And your biggest threat now is you're going to embolden the bears to jump further into this market, and then. Heck, if you think 50 is a sexy number in Brent, wait till we start talking about $40 mm. for NYMEX WTI. So it is do or die now for oil bulls. Steve, what did we learn yesterday from the Department of Energy when you got that, that report from them? Uh, what did we learn? We've, yep. Uh, we, we've learned, and, and keep in mind, I want, I want to really stress this to listeners, you can't look at these DOE reports in a one-off. It was just one week. It's impossible to capture the entire complex within one week's worth of data, so you look at the trends. And what we saw yesterday was just a continuation of the trend. And that trend is you cannot swing a cat in the United States without hitting a barrel of crude oil. So what we saw <laughs> I love that Hey, I quote you on image. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And so what we've learned, guys, is that since OPEC's announcement and the bulls want to keep their head in the sand, they don't want to address this issue. They keep on ignoring. They all want to focus on OPEC. They don't want to focus on North American demand. And since uh, that uh, announcement by OPEC back in November, U.S. producers have already put 600,000 barrels of oil back into the market. And if you believe the EIA forecast, by the end of this year, they'll add another 200,000 barrels of oil to the market. And so let's keep this in mind, because when we look at the February export numbers of U.S. crude oil, they surged to a record of 1.1 million barrels a day. More than half of that oil went right into Saudi Arabia, Iran's backyard, yeah. that is to say, to Asian yeah. refiners. So when we look at the export numbers in February, guys, Chinese buying of U.S. crude oil jumped 325,000 barrels a day, while Chinese imports of Saudi right. Arabian crude oil fell okay. 587,000 Steve, we're going to have you back. we got to go out and find a barrel of oil. Stand and a cat. Like a cat. Gotta find a cat. <laughs> Something like that. Stephen Shork with our cat report uh, this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.